bears overall a shares. Uh, let's sing the. Uh, shall we sing? When are they going to? When When are they going to change the national anthem? You know, there's been a lot of talk about that. Well, I'm just I'm just bringing this up. I you know I'm, I don't want to be subversive, but uh, I've always had the trouble with the Star Spangled Banner. I'll tell you. I, first of all, I can't remember the words. And uh, no, no, uh, one of the most embarrassing situations I ever saw happened at a major. You might have seen this happened at a major sporting event a year or so ago, and Robert Goulet was uh, called upon to sing the national anthem, which is a little ironical since he's uh, from Canada, but nevertheless, he was called upon to sing the, the national anthem, our national anthem. And so, you know how Goulet sings. He sings a given little echo chamber. You know, Goulet has one of these voices that is uh, kind of a strip off of Nelson Eddy, and he sings, Oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly Forgotten words, and he was coming. And he threw in an occasional word. And the stars, I thought, what a terrible thing you could see. And they had the camera right down on him. His face was in big, big technicolor on the TV screens, and his face was tremendous. You know, he had all the TV makeup, even through the TV makeup on, he became three shades paler. I mean, you know, and it was just terrible. And you could hear the, see, hear the t- you know, laughter in the crowd behind him. So I say that the, the problem is, you know, you, you just can't have him breaking up there in the middle of the Star Spangled Banner because it's uh, it's a hard song to sing to begin with. They have some fantastic uh, intervals in that, baby. You know, I mean, it hits uh, notes that uh, even, uh, you know, Leontine Price uh, stands back and winds up the hit. Uh, so when you're, you know, you're just ordinary, uh, you know, Charlie uh, Gutstop, and you're at the Kiwanis Club meeting, and you're asked to hit that uh, high D there, it's not easy, see. So I would suggest, since our country has uh, uh, gone a certain way in the last maybe 50 years, things have changed. We don't, we don't believe in the, in the. You know, the stars, the, the shells exploding at night and all that tells us that our flag was still back. You know, this kind of stuff. We, we don't believe in wars. And I certainly, myself, you know, no way. I, what do we believe in, though? We have to have a song that we believe in. You agree? Something we believe in. What is it we believe in today? I have a suggestion. There is a song that has always, already been written, and every guy in showbiz knows every last word. He knows 15 choruses of it. Uh, and it's what we truly believe in. So would you give me a little echo chamber? Now, first of all, the announcer would say, uh, you have a little echo chamber there. So we're, we're, let's say we're at the Shea Stadium, and it's in the World Series. Now, ladies and gentlemen, here is uh, 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 Big Charlie Winko singing from... Uh, uh, yes, he's going to sing it from memory, ladies and gentlemen, singing our national anthem. So would you all please stand and rise before tonight's big game? There's no business like show business. There's no business I know. Oh God, it wouldn't be a dry eye in the house because I think this country would be much happier if, uh, if uh, say, Robert Redford were to run for the president presidency because we would be in the hands of a good man. 
Uh, I mean, a man we can trust, a man with clear blue eyes. Uh, I think Newman is, uh, maybe Newman, I think, uh, but do you agree that that would make a, a, a pretty, <laughs> and I think it would be something everyone could warm to. Well, there's no business like show business, there's no business I know. Once a time you're up a bum bum, and next thing you know you're up a star, oh, show business. That's it, uh, it's not bad. That's for the Judy Garland crowd. And now before we move any further, friends, it's time for... Speaking of national anthems, there's nothing like a commercial to bring the cheeks, the roses. Can't you just see Willie Loman out there lying in the dark and the rain, and the minute I hit a commercial, his cheeks glow, and he can hear, ah, oh, they love me in Boston. Someday you'll oh, come on, sing it, gang. Let's hear it. Someday you'll Someday you're gonna. You're just going to give in. Sooner or later. With so many new kinds of tires coming out and so many claims being made about tires, maybe you're a little puzzled about making the right choice. Well, we have the solution. Just go out and buy General Tires. That's all. You know, sooner or later you're going to do it. The General Tires Specialist, he'll help you put the right tires on your car. If you need new tires, he'll be glad to spend a few minutes explaining which General Tire is best for you, your driving, and your budget. Your general tire specialist is one reason why sooner or later you'll own generals. Look them up in the yellow pages. Sooner Sing it or later, out. you'll own generals. Sooner or later, you'll own generals. Today we're in Barnes & Noble's new sale annex, right across the street from Barnes & Noble's main store at 5th Avenue and 18th Street in Manhattan. Imagine, a whole store full of books and not a list price to be seen anywhere. Well, I heard a bargain, but this is ridiculous. This book was just a bestseller. How can they be selling it for 69 cents? The sale annex is New York's biggest book value, with thousands of books at a fraction of their original cost. For example, you'll find $75 art books for less than $20. Best-selling cookbooks marked way down. Encyclopedias and sets at less than half of their original price, as well as paperbacks, children's books, reviewers' copies, foreign books, and much, much more. Now, don't go away. I'm coming back with a truck. It's all here at the sale annex, right across the street from the Barnes & Noble bookstore at 5th Avenue and 18th Street in Manhattan, the country's biggest bookstore of any kind, and probably the most interesting. Barnes & Noble, and you thought we only sold textbooks. Pompeii. The Colosseum, the Roman Forum. Alitalia's Italy is all you ever dreamed of, and more. For example, Alitalia's Italy is also where some of the best Greek ruins are. In Pestum, a misty little town on Italy's southwest coast. And in Agrigento, a hilltop city in Sicily. The Greek temples here are so well preserved, they actually have pieces of roof intact. And as any Greek will tell you, you can hardly find a Greek temple anymore with its roof intact. Alitalia has almost 50 different tours of Italy, some of which can be combined with a visit to Pestum or Agrigento. And only Alitalia flies exclusively 747s from New York to Rome and Milan. What's more, there isn't a scheduled airline in the world that can beat our new low fares to Italy. For free assistance, call an expert, your travel agent, or call Alitalia and come to Alitalia's Italy, where you get all you ever dreamed of and more. Oh, boy, I can't 
believe it's 7.30. It's 7.30, Marge. My first day back on the job after 20 years. I'm in bed eight hours and I feel just exhausted. I'll like it through today. Take a nap at lunchtime. Oh, sure. Then they'll be sorry they hired me. I think I'm too old. You should have listened to me last night when I told you to try Compose. On these occasional nights when you have trouble falling asleep, try Compose and wake up refreshed. Compose simply lets you relax and unwind so your body is able to fall asleep more easily. And of course, by falling asleep more easily, you're going to feel better the next morning. Remember, the more easily you fall asleep, the better you feel the next morning. Harry, I'm home. How'd you do the first day at work? I think they like me, Harry. Great. Let's go on and celebrate. Oh, maybe tomorrow. I'm going to bed. And if you can't sleep tonight? I'll take Compose. Compose. Use only as directed. And remember, the more naturally you sleep, the better you feel the next morning. Commercial time. I knew it. Uh, before we go any further here, uh, and uh, we're always saying before we go any further... Because, you know, you, you, have you had a, the feeling that you've gone too damn far already? You've committed yourself to a life of total mediocrity, and when did it start? When the heck did it start? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you look around, you see guys, uh, you know, ascending to Parnassus, and you wonder, what, what happened to me? I mean, you know. How, how, you know, you can understand some guys that inherit the whole world. I mean, you can understand Rockefeller, you know, Rockefeller inherits it all. But what about the other guys, you know? Let's face it, the Alfred Hitchcock did not inherit the 39 steps. He did it. And what were you doing? I mean, uh, let's face it, uh, uh, Norman Mailer, I mean, he just wrote all that stuff. What were you doing? Hanging around Christie's. That's right. Letting your life dribble away. That's what uh, T.S. Eliot, you know, wrote about. Ah, yes, ape men, Sweeney. Uh, That's a thought there, you know. Ape men, Sweeney, set. Or was it men of Archivy? It strips off the same pork loin. Men of Archivy ruled the day. Of course, and Richard Corey went home. And what did Richard Corey do? You know what Richard Corey did. And what did Ivanhoe say about all that? That's right. As he stood atop his white charger looking out over the lake. And Rebecca was around there, too. You remember her? Mm. And don't forget Silas. Silas Marner. He was on hand. He, too, ascended Parnassus. I mean, you may put him down, but they're still reading about him. Will they be reading about you five minutes from now? Forget it. Don't laugh at Scrooge. Scrooge was merely cutting costs. Just like many another business today. As a matter of fact, I think Scrooge can very well become a major national hero figure, uh, ultimately. I mean, Scrooge was only doing what almost every personnel director does today, right? I mean, cratch it, cratch it. What do you mean, more coal in that oven? What do you think we're running here, a hothouse? We're not going to put another piece of coal, scratch it, uh, scratch it, another piece of coal, until next Wednesday at the very earliest. Now put on your coat and go back to work. Of course, the office at that time was seven below zero. And that was Cratchit. And that was Scrooge. Locked together in mortal combat forever. 
Yeah. I'm sorry about the name. It's not Cratchit. I'm sorry. It's Thatcher. Right. Thatcher. And you remember his little daughter? Don't you remember uh, uh, Bob Thatcher's daughter? Remember Becky? Yeah, that was his, that was his daughter. And uh, do you recall the name of Mr. Scrooge's partner? Do you remember him? Don't you remember him? Ebenezer Barley, don't you recall him? And he rattled the chains. I, I don't wish to bring him, you know, rake up old nasty coals like that. But are you prepared? Just, you know, rhetorical question. Are you prepared? Uh, I suggest no. No man of today is prepared for anything because his life is almost totally controlled by, oh, there's no business like show business news, no business that I know. Everybody has a secret desire to either be in showbiz or spend his entire life in an audience wildly applauding the second act. Well, there's no biz like showbiz. And you know that showbiz rarely deals with anything that has to do with your life. You have not yet seen a play about a guy that's trying to make it in, in a world of total inflation. You know, he's earning $22 a week. And uh, he's down there <laughs> walking around the frozen food department, you know, where your average pork loin frozen runs maybe $22, including the bone. Uh, this is WOR New York. That would be a great play. You won't find that. That's not the kind of stuff Neil Simon turns out. Forget it, Bill. I mean, you know, what we want to see is plays about old vaudeville performers. This is revelant, right, huh? That's right. Oh, there's no business like show business. There's no business I know. A lot of tee I guess the last relevant play was Willie Loman. That was so damn relevant that they... Expense account guys stayed out of that by the droves because it was about them. You know? I mean, it's very embarrassing for a guy to buy a play and see himself up on the stage there, you know, walking around saying, Oh, boy, they love me in Boston. I tell you, I'm going to get, I'm going to get them orders. I tell you, uh, the, the, the next time that I get that, that, that buyer on the phone, now he loves me. I know that. He, the last time I saw him, he said, Willie, come in and give me a call anytime you show up here. And Biff, they love me in Boston, you know. And when I get that order, things are going to change. We're going to get a new carpet. The guy sees himself on the stage. He didn't like that. No way. Do you agree? No way. So they stayed away in droves on that one. They they much preferred uh, up the down staircase or uh, hit the whoopee or ding dong in the park. You know, those are, those are nice plays, you know. Hello, Dolly. What you know, Dolly? Really great theater. Yeah, that's great theater. And then, of course, uh, our plays uh, currently, I mean, our productions uh, in America, are becoming increasingly showbiz-oriented in their, uh, in their not only subject matter, but also in their titles. Uh, for example, uh, we're the only country on the face of the earth would ever think in terms of, of uh, calling a major production after various anatomical appendages. For example, hair. Which, uh, you know, it's very interesting. We just think, well, it's a natural thing. You name it after hair. It's like naming a pancreas. Great new play for people that are hung on pancreases. Uh, hair. Uh, applause. How about that one? Applause. That's, <laughs> that's what it's about. <laughs> and, uh, and almost all these uh, productions feature a very strong, dynamic lady that is being applauded throughout the entire production by all of her unbelievably admiring fans. 
as she comes down a long spiral staircase wearing an 1890s dress and singing. You know, they all sing as they're down on their knees. Hello, Dolly, what you know, Dolly? Where have you ever been? Apparently, they're, they're, uh, they're pretty much like... Uh, like early opera, you know. Have you ever, uh, ever thought in terms of, of early opera? Do you follow opera at all? Oh yes, opera was uh, very much like a lot of our current uh, musicals. And uh, have you noticed that the new theatrical season opens up with a, a, a smashing, uh, absolutely sensational uh, reopening of a 25-year-old play? That's the new... new. Uh, <laughs> well, that's just happening everywhere. Television has brought back Rin Tin Tin. I mean, let's face it. What's My Lies About for 400 years? Uh, Name That Tune is coming back. That's another great new show. So we're in the stage now of cultural rerun. Our entire life is being rerun in every conceivable direction. Why, do you realize today that if you go to any furniture store, it would cost you one ninetieth to buy an ordinary kitchen chair, that if that chair had been aged 14 years with kind of spitting tobacco juice on it, it'd be worth at least 300 bucks a shot. Rerun. People say, well, boy, they don't make chairs like they used to make. And, of course, he buys another Grand Rapids special. But because it was in somebody's kitchen for 15 years, it becomes a priceless artifact. And that is, uh, of course, uh, typical of a rerun society. Rerun. And... Uh, and I, I'm, uh, it has brought about some very, very interesting, uh, uh, let's say, misreadings of, uh, of society and also nature, our current uh, showbiz society. For example, have you ever seen a dangerous animal on television? Oh, no, no. You see animals that have been rendered dangerous by evil man, but you never see a dangerous animal. This is known as the... Elsie syndrome. In other words, Elsie's just a nice big kitty cat that basically would prefer uh, uh, friskies to, let's say, a, uh, a haunch of zebra. I mean, if only little Elsie could get, you know, an unlimited supply of friskies, she'd give up zebras and eat friskies, right? They even had a TV commercial like that where it showed, you remember the one where it showed the lion? The lion and the cat sharing a can of, uh, <laughs> of, of cat food. <laughs> what they didn't show is immediately after they stopped the cameras, he ate the cat. And then proceeded on three, uh, three cameramen and went down the street and got, got a passing horse. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's part of the, the current, uh, the current kookiness in our world, see? Oh, yeah, it's very interesting. Okay, yeah. Uh, now, tonight's show is about that. That scene, okay. And before we go on to the to the uh, wild uh, uh, illusions created by showbiz, uh, we would like to pause here briefly and give you another shot of uh, current 20th century showbiz. And what could be more current 20th century showbiz than the commercial? It is our art form. When the landlord said, "Move out, the building's coming down," Gramercy Park went into shock. We called a meeting and the Brain Trust advised, run a removal sale. Everybody loves a removal sale. But you know what happens when you move. There's so much to do, you can't do everything. Yet somehow the day comes and goes and there you are. And the day came and went and here we are. Gramercy Park wants to sell a lot of men's clothing in a hurry. The best way to sell a lot of clothing in a hurry is price. If you want a new suit or a sport coat or some slacks, go to 61 West 23rd Street. Just go through the big iron gate. 
Gramercy Park will sell you beautiful clothes at prices that would make Scrooge look like a big-time spender. There's no obligation, and credit cards are okay. Gramercy Park Clothes is open to 7, Saturday to 6, and on Sunday from 10 to 5. The address is 61 West 23rd Street, New York. Chevron. Your Chevron dealer is an auto specialist who can offer all the things your car needs to keep it running smoothly, like Atlas Steel Radial Tires. They'll give you sure traction, smoother handling, and a safer ride than ordinary tires because of their strong steel radial construction. Now's the time to see your Chevron dealer about the Atlas Steel Radial 70 Tire. On nights when you have trouble falling asleep, what are some of the things you do to help? Well, I sleep with my head at the other end of the bed. Sometimes that helps. I eat. (laughs) (laughs) I do relaxing exercises, starting with my toes, and I'm usually asleep before I reach my shoulders. On those occasional nights when you have trouble falling asleep, and exercise and counting sheep just don't seem to work, try Compose. Compose simply relaxes and unwinds you so your body is able to fall asleep more easily. Of course, by falling asleep more easily, you're going to feel better the next morning. So take Compose on those occasional nights when you have trouble sleeping. If you're not satisfied in any way with Compose, mail Compose the box top and they'll send you double your money back. Remember, the more easily you fall asleep, the better you feel the next morning. Compose. Use only as directed. It's guaranteed. Right? Yeah, I figured you'd appreciate that. It's kind of nice to hear folk songs of your time. You know, like the old Chevron song and nice stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, all right, okay. The other day, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm uh, sitting in this bus, see, and I, I like to travel by bus occasionally, see, because it, uh, it gives you a sense of, uh, you know, the life, the people and the times and all. I'm sitting there, and uh, I squat down on the bus, and uh, the very, there next to me is a, is a folded, creased copy of a paper I rarely see, the Daily News. Now, uh, there it was, see, so I pulled it out, being an inveterate reader, and I had read all the car cards in there, which warned me in, in, incessantly against VD and also implored me at the same time to join the Marines. So, uh, you know, card cards have a tendency to do that. Uh, <laughs> they go at cross purposes. So uh, I picked up this uh, paper there and I started to read it. And uh, somebody had torn out all the paper and left only a couple of shards of the sport page and about 17 pages of the TV appreciation page, which is very big in the daily news. You know. And uh, there was it's just, uh, selected highlights tonight. Now, I didn't even know that there was a show on. I later checked and found it was true that stars as a star, a lion. Did you know there's such a show? Well, it, it, the little capsule description of the of the of that episode that night was it says not to be missed. It was in heavy type. It says Elsie saves a young couple who are downed in their private plane, 
and leads them to safety. Well, that's a typical thing that a lion does. Uh, you know, I, I thought to myself, well, I'm sure that the people watching that say nothing at all. I mean, after all, it's Elsie. It's not any lion. And uh, their plane goes whapping down. First of all, the chance of them walking out to safety is kind of considerably small. You agree with that, Herb, as a fellow pilot. You may drag yourself out, possibly, with the help of 17 rescuers. But to walk out, especially after you've laid that, uh, after you've laid that Cherokee down in a 250-foot banyan tree, is uh, not easy to do. But nevertheless, they pulled that off, apparently. So, you, know, you notice how nice their <laughs> plane crashes are on TV? <laughs> I've seen at least five of them on, on uh, emergency. They go for that, you know, with a plane somehow mysteriously. doesn't even look like it's hurt. It's hooked in a tree, and there's a lady somehow in there, and there's the father going, <laughs> that's to show he's hurt, and they bring him down. He's okay. He, nobody ever dies on, on any of those shows. Oh, no way. In spite of the fact that you've jumped out of a 30-story building, you're going to survive it. If Marcus gets to you in time, no question. So, uh, nevertheless... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I'm feeling in such a mean, rotten mood. But uh, nevertheless, I, I thought, you know, that's kind of a good show. I may just watch that show tonight. Elsie saves a young couple whose light plane has crashed in the jungle. Well, I watched it. It was eerie. It was fantastic. This lion sees this plane go over in trouble. Now, this kind of lion this, this is, you know, this is, this is a current belief among animal cuckoos, is that lions have a great concern for people. And they understand these subtleties. So apparently this lion was very aware that a Lycoming engine, or a Continental in this case, makes a certain kind of noise when it's lost its number two magneto and is having trouble with its oil pressure. So this plane would... And of course the lion looks up very concerned. Now it did not look up, you know, with the eye of a, a normal lion. It's a... Look what's coming down. Hey gang! No way. No way. This lion, this lion looked worried, like, oh, a young couple is crashing in the jungle. And boom, and sure enough, you see the plane go, boom, boom, boom. And it, there's a little jar, and uh, that's the kind of crashes I like. And there's a little jar, and, and these people are now still sitting in their plane. I was kind of pleased to see that the, uh, that the block of this uh, Continental engine had not come into this guy's lap which is what often happens in airplanes, no matter how well you build them. But, you know, it's just a matter of physics, you know. You're going 170 miles an hour, you land. It's not easy. So, anyway, uh, here he is. And uh, he looks down, he says, Oh, great, Scott! He says to his wife, Look at this! Not only has our plane crashed, but, look, there's a lion down there! Well, of course, obviously, uh, Elsie had problems letting them know she wasn't just any lion. She was Elsie. And we know that Elsie is, uh, is blood brother or blood sister, depending. And these, by the way, all these animals are very, uh, very difficult to ascertain sexual relationships because, for one thing, if you notice that Lassie is actually a male dog. If you know anything about collies, that's no female. But uh, nevertheless, Lassie it is. So uh, I don't know what happened in his early childhood. I suppose, you know, I don't want to bring that up. That's a hell of a mess right there. You're getting in a whole different ballgame. So uh, Lassie and Elsie are blood brothers under the, under the fur. I guess. <laughs> because I, I, I remember one fantastic sequence. I miss Lassie on TV. Not on now, you know, except not in the boondocks. It's in the 703 run. Yeah, you can still see Route 66 out there in the weeds. Yeah, you go up in the main, you see Route 66. You see, yeah, Marty Milner. Yeah, uh, before he got a tube and everything. There he is. Uh, you see George Maharis when he was a doctor. That's a long time ago. 
believe it or not. Vic Morrow, when he was a doctor. Remember him? Yeah, yeah, hard to believe. You know, out, out in, uh, in certain areas of the country, do you know that Uncle Milty still rules Tuesday night? So the rerun has brought us into some very interesting time lag problems, and I'm not even about to discuss. I know one station that gotten so mad at the current news a year and a half ago that it runs old newscasts from the Eisenhower days now. Douglas Edwards is still doing the news on their station. They got all those reruns. Hell with all that bad news. Our people don't like bad news. They're tired of it. You know? And, uh, of course, uh, they get a little confused once in a while when uh, Douglas Edwards talks about what's happening on the Yellow River. But outside of that, they figure it's just another war. You know, they're always going on. So what the heck, you know? And that sounds like a kind of fun one anyway. So, uh, <laughs> nevertheless, I don't know why I'm telling all this. I will continue, however. Uh, I have to pound this dead lion here because this lion was a very important lion to me. I, I saw that lion, and, and the lion was looking up with, with pleading eyes. See, they were caught in a tree in an airplane. And this guy's frantic. You know, he sees a lion down there. Well, you know, had he been anything but a dumb human being, you know, human beings are inconceivably dumb in animal shows. Have you noticed every Walt Disney show, the only people that are nice to animals are kids? But the villain in all Walt Disney shows is a guy that wants to shoot the possum, the gopher, the duck, the dachshund, whatever you name it. There's always some guy played by Keenan Wynn who has a shotgun. And he says, I'm going to get that doggone thing and I'm going to stuff it. And I'm going to make that possum, that rotten little possum, I'm going to make him into a doorstop. Of course, the kid saves him. We know that. Whereas in the actuality of life, it's exactly the opposite. See, this is where the confusion comes in. It is kids who throw rocks at dogs. It is kids that uh, tear wigs off of flies. It ain't grown-ups. I haven't seen many grown-ups recently pulling feet off of, uh, off of uh, chinch bugs, have you? But you'll see many a kid doing that. Oh, yeah. But, see, that's part of our showbiz uh, confusion. See, we think that the kids give, give the kid a dog and it's nice. Listen, I know one kid, for crying out loud, that fed his dog right into the oil furnace. And it was fantastic. You know, the, the the house all of a sudden was 40 degrees hotter, and everybody thought that uh, Con Ed had given in finally, but no way. It was just their Airedale. So, uh, you know, <laughs> life is that way, friends. Bad taste. I only report on life. This is an actual case. If you want to document it, it happened in Somerville, New Jersey, 422 Pine Street. Okay, go out there and talk to the folks. They got another Airedale ready for next winter. But uh, <laughs> when things really get tough, <laughs> they've still got the same kid, although they keep him trussed up now. He's kept in a, in a you know, he's, he's kept in a, in one of those uh, jackets where your arms are hooked on behind you, you know, a straight jacket. And once in a while, I let him out, you know, to eat his uh, Alpo or whatever it is they feed him now. He barks, too. But that's... Uh, uh, you know, six of one half does the other. I would like to suggest, however, that this Lenin thing is very, very significant, very important uh, uh, point. And uh, we got time enough to tell you this story. So you shoot the kids out. You know, they all believe in Lassie. Okay, uh, <laughs> they do. <laughs> <laughs> I'll believe in Elsie. <laughs> Leads to some confusion, though, when you're walking down the down the garden path somewhere and you're confronted by a rhinoceros. You've been taught that rhinos really are just basically lovable, cuddle, you know, cuddly big guinea pigs. 
A friend of mine one time spent four and a half hours in a car being battered senseless by a rhino. Did you know? I'll tell you the truth. He's a, he's a cameraman, and he's from the Bronx. <laughs> his, only, his, only, uh, his only involvement with animals had been at a great distance at the Bronx Zoo. You throw peanuts at the rhinoceroses. He tried that to this rhino. It happened in uh, what is now known as Zaire, then the Congo. And this rhino just took one look at him and it snuffed that peanut, you know, right back at him and went kaboom, bam. And he got his horn stuck right in the, in the, in the, <laughs> in the radiator of this Land Rover. And he couldn't get it out. Well, that really bugged that rhino. And my friend was standing up on the top with this, you know, with this Aeroflex. And it was one hell of a ride he got there for a while. Backwards, forwards, sideways. This rhino went every conceivable way. And you think that in the end the rhino uh, uh, forgave them? No way. When that rhino got his horn out of that grill, you know what he did? Well, he tried the side. He just turned around and hit the side of the car. <laughs> Boom! At that point, uh, they decided to get out the flamethrowers, uh, which is something you don't see in the Marlon Perkins show. That when the, you know, uh, <laughs> so uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not anti-rhino. No, any of you rhino cooks that write in, don't don't say I said anything wrong about rhinos. Although it is a myth about that aphrodisiac thing. I know a guy that tried it. Nothing happened. I paid seven hundred dollars an ounce for a rhino horn, and nothing. So uh, if you're, you know, if you fall into this, so forget it. But uh, nevertheless, uh, the, the, the lion, standing down there at the bottom, looked up and went, mmm. What Elsie was saying was, I am your friend. Come, give me your hand in my paw, and I will lead you to the nearest Howard Johnson, where you will receive food and sustenance if you got your American Express card with you. Come. Well, this guy, you know, being a dumb human being, he figured it's a lion, you know, he's a dumb. Now, who saved him? Well, you guessed. It was his sweet, beautiful child bride. Amazingly enough, this guy had married a girl who obviously was maybe 11 or 12. And being basically a child, she says, Oh, but it's just a little kitty cat. He says, I'm going to kill him. Give me the gun. She says, No, no, no. Well, it was Walt Disney all over again. And uh, so Keenan Wynn, or who was playing the Keenan Wynn role, naturally lost because he, reaching for the gun, he fell heavily in the plane, knocked himself out, which gave the girl a chance to climb down the tree and make friends with the lion. It was already friends, right? Well, they finally got this chowder head. I mean, I, I hope none of you are going to be dumb enough to ever argue that whenever you see a lion anywhere running down uh, a jungle path, roaring loudly at the top of his voice, just say, look, okay, I understand. And uh, let him know you're its friend. I mean, you know, carry a little kitty litter with, and, uh, you know, and, uh, maybe a little uh, friskies or something like that. That lion is not out after you. That lion is just trying to contact the human beings. So, anyway, Elsie leads them through the jungle. Now, how did Elsie do it? By going... And then running, and then running back into the woods. Like this is the way that the path is. See, that way is where the evil people live. You come follow me. I take you to the hippopotamus. They're friends. <clears throat> and uh, so, <laughs> I I, I kind of like that. And uh, and uh, sure enough, at the end, it was a happy ending where the man was very contrite. He admitted that uh, he was wrong, and uh, he had been saved. Uh, he had been saved. His airplane was kind of bent, but the, the lion couldn't do much about that. It was interesting, though, when that lion was, when they flew over, I knew what that lion was saying. 
You know, after you watch enough of these shows, you can understand what lions say. You know what that lion was saying, Herb? All right, here, I, I made a recording of you. got my lion? Listen, you want to hear what this lion is saying? Now, when they flew over and that plane was sputtering, it was the lion roared up at Adam, and when it went over, now what was that lion saying? Hear that? I'm making the sound of a, of a Cherokee in trouble. Going you know what that lion is saying? Check your carburetor heat, you dummy! You're icing up! Well, of course, this guy, being a slob, did not listen to the lion, and he got what he had coming to him. Bang, into the weeds he went. The carburetor ice, and the lion was just trying to be a good fellow. Uh, this line knew, but well, I remember a Lassie sequence that I once saw. Did you know that Lassie not only can fly, has got a multi-engine rating? Now that's what got me. But Lassie obviously has an instrument rating. Did you know that? And on the same sequence, Lassie read a Geiger counter. I don't know how to read a Geiger counter. And, and Lassie could tell that the Geiger counter was indicating over the acceptable radiation count for the human psyche and also the bone marrow. Now, what was that sequence about? I don't have to bore you with this, but the, you know, the, the uh, young owner of, uh, of Lassie was up in the mountains there and uh, he was looking for uranium, apparently. And he had this Geiger counter. He's going around, see. And he finds this fantastic uranium strike. But at that moment, a rock falls off a ledge and hits him right on top of the head. And he is rendered insensible. And obviously, he's hurt. And the Geiger counter is going. And last, he looks at the guy. Oh, my God, look at that. He's laying right there over that, that, that uranium deposit. And he's having, uh, let's see, 90, 97, 98 wrenchings. Oh, my God. That man can only take 82 wrenchings an hour. And he dragged him and pulled him, looking always at the guy counter. Now the chowderheads watching that were wondering, what the hell is the meter he's looking at? Well, he was reading a Geiger counter, friends, and, uh, and any good any good uh, colleague can read a Geiger counter. So he dragged them back at, to the airstrip where they had gotten in. There was the only way to get out. There was their twin beach sitting there. Lassie drags them into the twin beach. Now, how many of you would know how to start a twin beach? It takes a little doing, doesn't it? I mean, with all those master switches, magnetos, and all that stuff, you know. Lassie quickly reads the checklist. And uh, sure enough, uh, the two, <laughs> the, tw the twin continentals burst into a roar. <laughs> he had just, and he had his paws going. He adjusts both of the, uh, yes, it was fantastic. He adjusts both of the throttles, and they went running down the runway, and he was leaning on the sticks. See, he knows you had to keep your nose down there to get that by airspeed, because this was a short runway takeoff. And uh, not every pilot would even know that, see. He knew that this plane was, uh, you know, at that altitude. Of course, you had density altitude to consider and all that. And he's looking at everything. He knows it's high. And sure enough, he leans forward. And then at the, at the last instant, after he had got that baby right down the nose is going, he just leans back. Lassie, she, I should say. Right? It depends, you know. Nomenclature is so tough. So he leans back. And with, with, with his claws hooked in the yoke, the plane takes off. Well, now they are flying through a mountain pass, which is not easy. Not easy, I can tell you that. You know, crosswinds and all that. And Lassie is flying up through the mountain pass. Now they get up, and what are they in? They are now in, in, in a very low fog hanging, overcast, mountains, clouds. They are in instrument conditions. That's fantastic. I mean, just, I was impressed. I mean, not only did Lassie keep, but Lassie, you know, the, the indication and the tendency of most 
neophyte pilots would be what? To fly by the seat of the pants and not trust the, the gauges, right? Lassie had her eyeballs on that turn and bank indicator on that, uh, you know, she was watching every gauge like, uh, it took him right through that, and he's laying on the floor. And Lassie kept glancing back and always, always keeping an eye on the Geiger counter. And finally, Lassie gets him out of the cloud bank, and uh, ahead you could see, you could see the, the landing field. Now that, of course, they played a little bit with time and space there, but it wasn't easy because not only was this, he had to consider jet vortex, because at that point, a 727 had just made a landing. Lassie managed to pick the right runway, had a little trouble with the, with the microphone, because, you know, it doesn't have a thumb, can't uh, contact the mic there. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, barked into the, into the, uh, into the unicom. Ow, ow! Well, there was, a, there was a very knowledgeable ranger in the control room there who heard Lassie barking and says, My God, she's at the controls. Don't worry. Lassie's got an instrument rating, multi-engine rating, and she's better rated than that damn fool that uh, took her up there. Don't worry about it. And he said in the, in the microphone, runway 32 is active. I'm clearing all the traffic out. And he says, traffic, clear away. Lassie, landing uh, Beach 99 Whiskey, is coming in on runway 32. Uh, raise your nose a little, Lassie. You're coming in low over the outer marker. Okay, you've got it made. Lassie laid it down on the numbers. I wonder everybody's getting mad with their pets. Why don't you write a book or do something? I mean, Lassie flies a plane. You can't even drive the Pinto, you dummy. What are you going to do about that? Give me a little more lion there, would you, Herb, please? That's a goodie there. I love the way he, you know, a carburetor heat is not an easy thing to detect at 400 feet. That plane went over 400 feet, see? He could tell that he was icing. Hear that? Hear the note of concern? Human concern and great knowledge. That ain't your average dumb lion. No, sir. So tonight we would like to salute Elsie, or Elsa, Elsie, whatever her name is. <laughs> and remind me to tell you, uh, I'm going to tell you in the next couple of weeks. And I, is the theme on, or is it come? Uh, how, how much time do we have? I can't hear a thing in here. We have seven, eight minutes? Seven seconds, that's better. Don't ever do that. That means ten minutes in my business. Right, Herb? Uh, this means 10 seconds. Get the hell off. Okay. And so the bugles blow. And the time for all good men to rise to the... Uh, what is it? The, yeah, we have a country. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. All right. Program's over, friends. Once again, we have fought the good fight. And what do you do at the end of every good ball game? You sing the national anthem, right? Okay. There's no business like show business. There's no business I know. Little, uh, <laughs> little Elsie learns to sing. <laughs> Very good. That was a B flat. Right on. Right on. Get maybe one or two notes. You'll be able to sing as well as your average musical comedy star. I got David Merrick will put a show on you. Well, you know, I mean, we're all tired of all that business with Angela Lansbury and all those ordinary old people. You know, can't you imagine a great big musical starring Elsa? Can't you see Elsa coming down the main runway there? And everybody's singing, Elsa, we love you. Oh, Elsa, where you been? Oh, how we love you. And the Elsa comes down. She's returned from showbiz, and she's come back to her simple little jungle clearing, which is uh, occupied, strange enough, by Jack Guilford, who's in every musical. You know? And her manager, who later marries her, is played by Zero Mostel. And this is natural, you know. 
I hate this business. You know, we, we're breaking down all those old barriers. Racial color, that's, I'm glad of it, too. There's no reason why Zero Mostel can't marry Elsa. Not in a truly enlightened society. Wouldn't you say that, Herb? Presuming we're an enlightened society, and I like to think that we are, right? There's no business like show business. There's no business I know. Remind me to tell you the story. I'm going to tell you the story of Herman, the Golden Eagle. I know a Golden Eagle, and I'll tell you that story. It's a sickening story, and please put the kids to bed before you dare. Oh. This is WOR New York. Smarter than the average ranger. Stay tuned for In Conversation. 